Hello, everyone. My name is Ian Rowe. And I'm Nike Fajors. And welcome to The Invisible Men, where we make the achievements of incredible men invisible no more. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of The Invisible Men. My name is Ian Rowe. I'm a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Hello, I'm Nike Fajors, a member of the Leadership Network at AEI. All right. Hey, Nike. Good to see Hi. you. Always. Um, and our viewers know we uh, do the Invisible Men podcast to highlight some pretty incredible guys that you may not uh, normally hear of, but are doing some pretty inspiring work. And today is really exciting because we have another member of the original, <laughs> the original crew of the Invisible Men, Mr. Jonathan Newton, has joined us. Yes. Hey, Jonathan. Hey, how's it going? Good to good see you, brother. Yeah, so, seeing, absolutely. Yeah, so Nike, you know, you and I were at Harvard Business School, but Jonathan was at Harvard Law School mm -hmm. and came across the Charles River to do uh, uh, <laughs> to work with us, and it was really great to have you. So Jonathan is the pastor at Jordan River Ministry and is an attorney with the federal government. You've done some inspiring things. So, so Jonathan, welcome. And uh, you know, we just love to start by giving you a chance to. Just tell us a little bit about your backstory uh, before you became the Jonathan Newton of today and any kind of defining moments. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, well, as you may remember from the original, I grew up in the South Bronx, um, got a chance to go to some pretty amazing schools, notwithstanding that. Um, even in high school, I was selected uh, through an enrichment program uh, for the inner cities to go to a very prestigious high school, so that was good. Gave me a good jump start. Um, the, Filson, the Filson School in the Bronx. Yeah, okay. Well, actually, let me, it's in Riverdale. It's technically in the Bronx, but they like to call it Riverdale. They, <laughs> <laughs> maybe now that the Bronx is, is, is a little more developed uh, and a little more cosmopolitan, they may adopt that moniker, but they always, the envelopes, the letterhead, everything said Riverdale. Interesting. Uh, from there, went to Georgetown, um little uh i got there initially did really well uh pledged the fraternity plus cap off aside um after pledging i felt like well life is good now i'm not in the bronx anymore i got all these friends and forgot about the main reason i was there in the first place which was to go to school <laughs> okay. that led to a little academic sabbatical and as i often say it wasn't totally voluntary okay. um, during that time went in the army reserve uh came back to school wow. went to the university of maryland uh finished up at maryland went to harvard law school um after that practice i was a prosecutor i was a law clerk uh for an administrative law judge then a prosecutor uh then went to the Environmental Protection Agency, which is where I've been for, I don't know, 20-something years now. Pretty much um, almost all of my legal career. Most of my legal career has been at the EPA. Wow. Wow. So there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack there. But before we, before we leave the Boogie Down Bronx, how, <laughs> how, how is that experience just growing up? The Bronx was tough. The Bronx was a, a tough place, um, but I, I loved it. Uh, it was... Uh, very good for developing uh, me. I felt that from the Bronx, I never got the mindset or got into mindset that anybody owed me anything because 
everything that you did, you pretty much had to work for. Um, and so that has helped carry me a long way. The one thing that it uh, did not do was tell me exactly where I wanted to go. I knew where I wanted to get away from, but not where I wanted to go. Um, so the Bronx, it just sort of honed in the skills, the determination. From it, I think I gained the determination that if I put my mind to it, I'm going to overcome it. I'm going to get by it. And also pretty much because many of the choices literally were life and death is like, if it's not going to kill me, I can live through this. I can make it through this. So that uh, has carried me a long way. Got it. And, and how is your family supporting you during that time? Family is great. Um, as well as they could be, they didn't quite understand it. I was the first person in my immediate family to graduate from college. I had an uncle who had gone to college a few years ahead of me, um, but did not finish. Uh, so by the time I was working through graduate school, later working through seminary, uh, they were supportive in that, hey, he's at it again. They had seen me when I fell off, when I wasn't doing so well, and when they thought that, okay, now my trajectory in life is definitely leading me towards cab driver or uh, factory worker, but they saw me pull out of it and, and move forward. And, you know, the love uh, was always there. We didn't have a lot of material things to share, but the emotional, the spiritual um, encouragement and support was always there and, and, and still is. Jonathan, in terms of the, your, your friends in, in the Bronx, you know, the people that you spent time with, um, did they have similar success to you? It varied. Um, certainly you can always, I mean, you can even look on, you know, on the news, on TV and see success stories from the Bronx of people that I knew. Uh, there was some, you know, some sad stories, some pretty good stories. Uh, but again, it was the Bronx. And we all love it at the end of the day. Um, had one guy who was, you know, this, this is like my, my backup. Anytime I had trouble uh, in the neighborhood, I knew I could always call on this guy. When I got to college, um, it, it wasn't three months before I learned that he was murdered. Um, wow. My best friend growing up and, and we uh, went through thick and thin together. He also went to college, had some challenges, but ultimately he made it through and he's doing well. Um, so there's, everything in between what makes the difference what why is it so fragile what 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 leads that to different paths no always think of if you remember the, the movie boys in the hood <laughs> there was a scene there where um after an incident that they have with some guys who want to take um the boys football um some of them decide well i'm going to go to the store and another one decides well i got to go meet my father in that innocent decision made a difference. The ones who went to the store ended up shoplifting, getting arrested. The one who went with went to see his father ended up just getting a different experience, getting some advice, and it kept him from entering that early juvenile delinquency. And I think it could be just simple choices, um, things that I didn't realize I was assigning at the time that really ended up making a difference in the long run. Yeah, that's incredible. You know, I, and just reflecting back 30 years ago when we were lucky enough to have you on in the program, you know, I was so excited about you because I just felt like, not that I grew up with a silver spoon, but I just felt, you know, as, as I, you know, as I said before we started this conversation, there was a word that wasn't used back then, but the authentic nature of your experience, I just felt like it was so meaningful. And, you know, what you just said was really uh, very powerful. I have to say one thing for our audience. So Harvard Law School, Harvard Business School, this is something I never forgot. And it was 
from a friend of mine that did both degrees. And he said, if you want to have a godchild, a god, a godparent, excuse me, for your child, you get a Harvard Business School person. But if you want to talk to the more intelligent person, you go to Harvard Law School. I don't know. And I, <laughs> I, I pretty much carried that uh, my whole life. You know, it's sort of the business school person, sort of a good talker, polite, high EQ, but the law school person, high IQ. Anyway, I, I wanted to put that out there for our readers in terms of the, the two schools. But um, so one thing you said I didn't know about. So this Army Reserve, I, I'd love to just hear how you made that decision, what impact it maybe had to get you back on track. What was that? Um, some of it was just going back to a decision that I made was made when I was coming out of high school. When I was coming out of high school, uh, something in me said I wasn't quite ready. And I actually <laughs> had enlisted in the Air Force Reserve. Wow. Um, um, with the understanding that I would, you know, go away, do training, and then I would come back uh, to school in January. Georgetown later contacted me and said, oh, whoever told you that made a mistake um, that you can't sit out a semester as a freshman. I said, what you would have to do if you want to do that, and that's fine, we encourage it, but you would have to defer to another year. And in my heart of hearts, I felt that if I have to be uh, in the Bronx from January through August until the next school year started, that I wasn't going to make it, that something was going to happen. Wow. So I, I put off the reserve, I went to school, um, after I got to the point of, of, of academic um, malfeasance, <laughs> I basically <laughs> then said, well, let me go now into the Army Reserve. It did help to focus me. Um, it also gave me something else. It, it you know, uh, gave me another vision of things that I wanted to keep away from. I love the Army, but after you've been in college for uh, some time, enjoying the college life, the parties and all those things. Um, I literally remember waking up at times and I think like, okay, my friends back at school aren't even asleep yet. They're still partying. And so <laughs> I think I need to get away from this and, and get back to college. Oh, that's hilarious. Wait, I have to ask you just because I, I, I run schools in the South Bronx. Where were you? What do you mean in terms of? In, uh, uh, were you near 151st in Grand Concourse? I was on 169th and 3rd, so not too oh, far. Not from too far, not too far. Well, right now, there is an 85,000 square foot uh, building, beautiful school. Wow. All boys, elementary and middle school, right there in the heart of the South Bronx. That is awesome. Yes. That is awesome. Yes. yes. So, wow, I just want to make sure kids like you have... Better choices, my friend, better choices. So wait, so, okay, so, let's, so let's talk about that academic sabbatical moment. When you first <laughs> found out, because I could imagine here at Georgetown and then suddenly this happened, how do you recover from that? Like what, 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 because it's, that's a deep blow. That was, that was, that was indeed a deep blow. When I got to school, um, and again, I, I was a good student. Matter of fact, when I first got to Georgetown, my GPA, uh, and I felt like without even working that hard, was a 3.7. Um, it was, it was pledging that really brought my uh, GPA, my grades, and my focus down and away. Um, and so coming back out of that, I mean, it really did, it, it, it took, it was a process. I literally had to go to community college to redo some classes because I, I didn't, I couldn't afford to pay for all those classes now because I lost scholarships. I couldn't afford to pay for all those things out of pocket. Uh, so I went to community college, redid a lot of classes, and then reapplied to school. I was 
going to go back to, I literally was back at Georgetown. I was standing in the registration line um, and, and considering what it was going to mean to me financially. Cause again, no more scholarships. Um, and then at the other hand, I had in my arms, like in my back pocket, figuratively, uh, an acceptance letter to university of Maryland. Um, at that time, um, I had developed residency. So I'm thinking like, I've got in-state tuition at Maryland or I got Georgetown, you know, in Georgetown. I mean, some of my best friends, my friends for life were from Georgetown, but just financially, I didn't think I could do it. So University of Maryland became a choice. Wow. Okay. Okay. By the way, I mean, when I was at Cornell, um, similarly, I didn't rush a fraternity, but many of my black male classmates, especially in engineering, they, they rushed and the vast majority of them never graduated. Mm. It's, it's, wow. you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a tough decision, right? Cause you're, you're in this campus, you know, you know, you're one of very few kids. And so you feel you need to create this kinship. And yet that desire for kinship is hard to manage while also managing everything else you're trying to do at school. And, and it shouldn't be that way. Obviously, there are some there are some flaws within our process that we've tried to fix. I know I've tried to um, put that perspective on it, uh, not to take not to take so much attention away from academics. In 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 theory, we had time every day to study. Uh, we had time set aside where you know, obviously we can go to class. But in practice, uh, particularly at that time in the '80s, we were just too tired. That whenever I stopped moving, I would literally just fall asleep. I, I would fall asleep in classes. I would okay. fall asleep in the library. I mean, whenever we weren't just moving, I fell asleep. Wow. Wow. So faith is obviously a, a huge part of your day-to-day -to -day today. Yes. When did that happen? Has it always been there? Um, not always, particularly not always for myself. Some of the... I mean, my, some of my early memories, probably like a many uh, when I was younger, particularly when I went down south, you know, you had to go to church with my family there. Um, but my memories of that church were of me and my cousins, you know, crawling on the floor, sitting out the back door and, and going back to, to just play and not really paying attention to the church service at all. Um, ironically, this sort of like fast forward um, later when I did on my own. Uh, joined the church and then eventually get called to ministry and I became ordained in, a, in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And I'm thinking like, there are some people in the church that have been uh, AMEs for life, born and raised AME. And I just felt like I was AME by choice. You know, I learned the history of the church. I learned what it was about and uh, became an AME minister. And then when I went back uh, to my family down south and was talking about them, they said, no, the church that you snuck out of was an AME church. Um, everybody wow. in our family was AME. Uh, so I was like, oh, wow, who knew? So uh, <laughs> that was that was like an interesting ira. I don't think I can claim that I was born and raised AME, right. uh, but um, you know, Lord some of my early memories in the ways. AME church. The Lord in serious ways. Yeah, he does indeed. He does indeed. I think when I first really started um, really gravitating towards God on my own was when I was um, during that training period in the Army Reserve, that when we had a free moment, we had free times. I mean, this is after basic training, when we were in our advanced training, that they would give us um, sometimes Saturday afternoon, Sunday free. And as opposed to some of the other things that I that people could have done or did do, I actually gravitated towards that church. And I really appreciate it. Some, I can't even remember the church now, but it was a church at Fort Bragg that I just went to faithfully every Sunday 
And uh, and really, I was I first bought my own Bible. And I was like, okay, you know, it just started open my eyes to a, a bigger life. Got it. And you have had, uh, and I didn't even know this. You had a health scare of some kind. Yes, yes, that's been one of my biggest challenges of late. About a year and a half ago, um, I had a stroke. Um, completely surprised me because at the time. I thought I was in good shape. I thought, you know, while I had some problems, we've got, as many black people do, diabetes and high blood pressure running my family. Um, I had got my uh, my blood sugar under control, uh, my blood pressure under control. I was working out every day, um, eating better, and literally out of nowhere, in my opinion, I had a stroke. And uh, the other thing that I try to warn people or just sort of illuminate the people you hear these sort of standard signs to look for indicators to look for when someone is having a stroke that they're maybe slurring that their face is drooping i didn't have any of those conventional signs um but i knew that something was wrong uh and fortunately i you know called my wife she was able to get home quickly she looked at me and she says because now when she came in she saw my arm hanging and it seemed unusual to her and so she actually did think stroke and then i learned something else about strokes um you can have what's called tias they're like mini strokes yeah when the paramedics came they they evaluated examined me everything was fine and they started explaining to me about tias and i said you know i mean okay i got it they said it may come back it may not come back uh, but otherwise they were like you know they sort of cleared me and they were about ready to go they said if you really want to go in the hospital we can take you in to get checked out and you know my wife and i decided that i should go in and get checked out sure. um, they were taking us to the hospital not even as a stroke patient just basically transporting us to the hospital mm -hmm. on the way it started happening again <sighs> and so while i was in the ambulance they literally you know called it back in they upgraded the response to a, a stroke victim um, and when I came in, um, the, the saga proceeded. I ended up in the hospital um, for six weeks. Uh, I was there for, you know, they were testing me when I was there. They did everything that they were, you know, that they could do. And for a long time, I was fine. I was, I was, I was moving. They would come and do neurological tests, make sure I could move, make sure I was responsive. Um, it was fine. They were doing it every 15 minutes. It was exhausting. Um, but at one point they did it while I was asleep. They woke me up. I remember it was right around midnight. Um, and they said, you know, raise your hands, do this, which I couldn't do at the time. I said, I, I can't move it. And I couldn't move any part of the right side of my body. Um, and so I had to spend time learning how to walk again, uh, learning how to use my arms. I'm still trying to, still trying to get the ability to write again, to the, the dexterity in my fingers has not fully returned yet I've, I've had incredible um progress but there's a lot more that i'm looking to to recover so that is a big area of advocacy for me now just trying to inform people uh especially black men about the risks of stroke one of the things that they spoke to me about when I was in the hospital after they were, the doctor was talking to me and he couldn't really pinpoint exactly um, what caused the stroke, but they would just talk, uh, pointing out some lifestyle issues. And one that he pointed out that I think we kind of overlook regularly is the importance of rest. You know, as, as an attorney, as a pastor, as a husband, as a father, you know, I, I think many of us, we thought it was kind of, certainly we were as graduate students uh, in Cambridge, or Boston, you guys were in Boston, uh, but we, we thought we were, 
you know, sometimes sleeping like five hours of sleep seemed like the norm. It's like, fine, I'm, I'm good, you know? And, and you do that and the doctors like that is absolutely not enough. And like, you must get a minimum of seven hours sleep. And I've talked to friends who are, who, who are still living that life and, and the, you know, I, I can see the impact it made upon them when they looked at my condition, when they looked at me because back then I was still in a wheelchair. I said, we got to rest more. We got to, we got to, you know, seven, eight hours. We got to do it because it's important. You can have long range implications that we're not aware of. You know, I, I just bought an audio book titled sleep and I've just started listening to it. And, and this guy, I mean, exactly what you just said. He says, if you don't get eight hours, okay, let me tell you what will happen eventually. I mean, it was really, I, I, and now you, you educating us and providing this, you know, very personal testimony about what you've been through. I'll tell you what, <laughs> I think I'll be going to bed. I'll be going to bed in about two hours. I'll see, <laughs> God, I'll see you guys Take a nap right now. Right. <laughs> I have to ask one question. Yeah, we're, I want to get us to our, spe our, our speed round, Jonathan, but one question, because you, you've obviously been in the D.C. and the greater D.C. area for a long time. Just want to get your opinion. Who, who's, the best, who's the best mayor of D.C. that you've seen? Wow. Okay. That, that, <laughs> the best mayor. Okay. Yeah. DC, and, I, and I've seen uh, many, and, and as a minister at you know, one of the prominent churches in D.C., I uh, got to interact with a lot of them. But I'm going to have to go all the way back to Mayor for Life, Marion Barry. <laughs> As the best mayor. As the best mayor. And, and the reason, some of the impact that he had, I mean, we, in a lot of years, people think of Marion Barry because of some of the controversy, um, the, 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 the uh, criminal prosecutions, things like that. But, and, and I had a lot of church members. In fact, one, um, when I went to the family after someone had passed, I just went to comfort the family, and they got to talking. And somehow they got to talking about Marion Barry. And they said that this house, this everything we have, we would not have had it, but for Marion Barry. So that when he was mayor in, 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 uh, in his early days, I mean, he really emphasized how much of an activist he was. He opened up city contracting uh, to black people, insisted that black people, black contractors or some contractors be a part of the deal. And that if they weren't part of the deal, they weren't going to deal with the city. Uh, and that type of thing, I mean, there are a lot of people who will claim that he really opened the doors uh, or expanded the ranks, rather, of the black middle class in the D.C. area because of how many people were able to get in, either in government or involved in government track contracting through his advocacy. And so for that reason. And I also, when I came here um, for college, they had a summer youth employment program. And... While New York had a program, it was nowhere uh, near the level of D.C.'s. The D.C. program guaranteed every youth that wanted a job uh, would get a job. And that was not the case in New York. Um, it was kind of hit or miss whether you were selected uh, and if you were selected, where you would be. And Marion Barry pretty much guaranteed um, Every youth in D.C. that wanted a summer job, he would get them a summer job. And I thought that was a tremendous uh, promise and one that he fulfilled, one that he followed through on. So and there are oogabs of stories that I could probably pick up on here and there. But because of that um, and looking at the long range impact, um, I think Marion Barry. I tell you, Ian, I'd love for you to get one of your one of your analysts. To, I would love to look at like crime statistics and you know, two-parent homes and drug use, you know, under 
Mayor Barry versus, you know, some other periods. I mean, I, you know, who income for, you know, the, the DC area. I mean, who knows? The statistics might be really interesting. Yeah, right? I mean, that was not the answer I expected. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are many people in this area who still call him mayor for life. Mayor of life. I've known people who worked for him, who worked with him, uh, and so they can attest and and, they will uh, be give a strong testimony, a strong witness to the effectiveness of Marion Barry. Okay. All right. Thank you for that. So let's let's move to our speed round. Um, You know, we, we, we basically offer you up two individuals or two philosophies, ask you to pick one and and tell us why Um, we're going to start with free speech or free enterprise free speech or free enterprise i think i'm going to have to pick the lawyer answer and say um it it depends (laughs) (laughs) um and the reason that i say depend and and in many ways i don't see free speech or free enterprise as having to be in conflict i mean certainly teaching um business i teach business law at howard university and one of the things i try to encourage the business students is to incorporate and embrace um, ethical values in their business practices, free speech obviously being included among those. And I think that we have better businesses, better better uh, economy if we incorporate better ethical practices, better ethical principles. And to do that, people gotta be able to speak their mind. Um, some companies, some places, people are very stifled and can't um, let their employers or even their coworkers know what they feel is wrong or why they don't feel comfortable in the workplace. Uh, and so when you allow people to freely speak uh, without fear of repercussion, I think that then the free enterprise uh, blossoms in the long run. Very good. Uh, now, this one, you got to give us, we don't want the lawyerly answer. We, we want the South Bronx answer. Uh, Malcolm or Martin? Depends. I can't. <laughs> I can't. And, and, and again, that is... That is something that is sort of uh, foundational to some of my my ministry, that I believe that too often we polarize ourselves, that we have to embrace difference. And through so much polarization and through this so, so much of the mindset that it has to be one or the other, um, that leads to xenophobia and, and all the things that come from it. We got to recognize difference and the benefits of difference and how it all enriches our lives. Some days I wake up and say Malcolm. Some days I wake up and say Martin. So... <laughs> All right, we got one more. Now, I think I know what the answer is going to be, but uh, Jay-Z or Kanye? Oh, that one I won't give you the same answer. I have to say Biggie, without a doubt. Notorious Big. <laughs> oh, oh, so not, not even the two. I mean, just Biggie, um, his, his, from New York, I mean, it, it just resonated with me in so many ways. And he Everything inspired both of them. He inspired both of them. He did inspire both of them. And if I really had to choose between the two, I would, I would pick Jay-Z. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that he was more of a, you could see more of Biggie's influence upon him. Um, but Biggie's music really spoke to me. And so, yeah. Wow. What did that music say to you when you were in the Bronx? Um, it it, it <laughs> had that. Well, his music actually came out when I by then I was like in in, in law school, in fact. Okay. Uh, but his music really talked about that determination that I've got. I've been dealt a bad hand, but I'm going to rise above it anyway. Yeah. You see that that answer tells me. <laughs> You know, that it reminds me of sort of what my childhood was like. It's like I, I never connected with Biggie. I, I um, 
I, I never, the only song I liked that he did was the one he did with 112. You know, I just was, only uh, so it's just, it's just fascinating. Your background really does shape so much. I love that answer. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Hey, Jonathan, you mentioned that you were teaching at uh, Howard Business School, Howard Business yeah. School, right? Um, and not HBC Law. Um, what do you think, what do you think is the role of historically, historically black colleges right now? Um, yeah, business law. It's using business law there. Yeah, um, business, yeah. In, in this, in this, in this current moment that we're facing as a country, I, I I think they're important. I think that they need to focus in on not getting away from some of their um, original purpose because that purpose is still valid. There are still people uh, who do not have the opportunities that others may have, and the schools present them um, that opportunity. They also create a sense of community that you often don't get in uh, traditional white institutions. Um, you know, being at Howard, and one of the things I often uh, make note of to my classes is that one thing about Howard that you will always have is your Howard network. Wherever you go, there's going to be people from Howard there, and they will always um, at least embrace you and welcome you, uh, even if you don't like it, but they, they're going to recognize that we went to Howard and that they have that in common, and that makes a difference. Um, I've known people who have moved to areas and they had no idea how they're going to make do in that area. I said, you know what, you know, in that I actually know a guy who's the president of the Howard alumni in that area, you know, and from that had just opened up a, a whole uh, realm of opportunities, a whole wealth of opportunities through that connection. I think that connection is very important. Got it. One of our one of our prior guests, uh, Vernon Lee, was a, was a was a Howard grad okay. and spoke very fondly of the school. And actually, one of our friends from business school, Leon Henderson, yeah. Uh, yeah. was also a, a Howard grad and has done you know exceptionally well in the financial services space. Mm-hmm. I remember Leon well. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jonathan, you have been a great guest, but we can't have you leave. Uh, it depends. We, until what's that? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that was another question. I was just saying in advance. In advance. <laughs> well, Jonathan, you more than anyone remember why we started this whole uh, series of Invisible Men because you were there at the outset and mm-hmm. we had created this character, Daryl. You know, in the aftermath of the whole Rodney King trial, and we just thought, God, if there's a 16-year-old black kid, who is he seeing? that's trying to sift through the dominant image of black men. And here we were at Harvard Law School, Harvard Business School, the other Harvard graduate schools. I mean, Nike, you had this incredible idea. Yes, yeah, great. Showcase idea. invisible men. And then to talk to Daryl, mm-hmm. you know, the 16 year old black kid who lives in forgotten USA, fast forward 30 years. What would you say today to a contemporary Daryl who's trying to make his way in the world? I would definitely say read. Um, And I think that reading helped me a lot, but I would also encourage, I would add to that, something I wish I had done in retrospect is read biographies. Understand what people, how high they have achieved and what they have achieved. Um, One of the things that I found even after after law school, literally, is that, again, I knew uh, being raised in the Bronx what I want to get away from, but I didn't know all the possibilities that were available. And I think that coming out of that environment, it's important to open your eyes to the possibilities. I mean, right from the Bronx, 
going to school not far from where I went to school, uh, where I raised rather, Colin Powell went to school in the South Bronx. Yeah. Um, and to just read how people came out of similar situations or other, sim- or, you know, may have been another area, but were able to aspire and reach heights in areas of which I had never contemplated, I think that's very important, just to open your eyes to the possibilities because you get tunnel vision in that type of environment. Open your eyes to the possibilities. Yeah. I love it, man. I love it. All right, Jonathan, Newton, so great to see you, man. So great, great to see you guys as well. It is By great. By the way, are there any resources that you want to point us to regarding the information about stroke? Is there anything that we should um, have our viewers know about? Um, there is a book that I read in this book because there's so much, um, so much research and so many different philosophies that doctors are, are toying with and literally between the different therapists, you can get different therapists, uh, with different mindsets, but there's a book called stronger after stroke that I think really opened my eyes to some of the different theories out there and how they could apply to me. And also just to raise people, one of the things that I found is there's a huge difference um, unfortunately, in what physical therapists can do, often they are constrained uh, by the by the by the facilities that the in which they serve in which they practice. Uh, meaning, unfortunately, insurance companies, financial people, people who went to Harvard Business School are controlling um, that industry too much. And I think that in ways it does not allow adequate focus to be placed upon the patient. There's a big emphasis on making sure that people are safe, which is important. Uh, but you also, uh, in doing so, they often shortchange recovery. Um, and so they just want to, you know, they, they want to rehabilitate you so you can do things safely, but not help people recover. That yeah. book, Stronger After Stroke, really opened my eyes to that distinction and to that, uh, to that quandary that they face. And so I would rec- I've recommended that, in fact, to everyone who I've come across who's had a stroke. Read this book. Um, get it on Audible, whatever, listen to it, but, re- you know, get this information. Okay. All right. All right, Jonathan Newton. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Nike, another great episode uh, for all of our viewers. If you ever want to see any other uh, episodes of the Invisible Men, please go to www.invisible.men. And once again, I'm Ian Rowe. I'm Nike Fazers and Brother Newton, thank you so much. As always, you're an inspiration. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for watching another episode of The Invisible Men. You can find other episodes at the AEI podcast channel on YouTube or the website invisible.men or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.